couple of Bible readings, and I invite you to open your Bibles, actually, for these readings today. Whatever translation you normally use, I'm just giving you a heads up. This is the ESV version, the English Standard Version, and we've got two. I'm going to start with Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 1 to 9 only. Now, Deuteronomy 32 is a song recited by Moses from beginning to end in the hearing of the whole assembly of Israel. And then pretty much shortly after this, he dies. Okay, so this is a very important recitation. And we're going to listen to the first nine verses. Give ear, this is Moses, give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, Just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Is this how you repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. And Psalm 82, also in the ESV, just the first eight, well, yeah, it's eight verses. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Selah means... Stop and consider this. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God's. Sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Well, we're going to continue with the theme that we began last Sunday, which was Christ's triumph over the powers. We're looking at that. Uh, last weekend and we're going to continue it again today. Let me just give you a heads up about where we're going and uh, to say that 
Uh, got three big points today. Firstly, going to say some things about the Bible. Uh, secondly, I'm going to talk about something I'm going to call the Deuteronomy 32 lenses to look through the Bible, which is about God's divine counsel. And thirdly, I'm going to say why the Deuteronomy 32 lenses are important. Some of you got glasses, some of you wear contact lenses. You know that lenses are important. Some of you work in optometry. You know lenses are important. The lens that you look through determines what you see. So it's important that we look through the Bible with the right lenses. So let's begin. We're going to say some things about the Bible. Now, a lot of the, some of this will be, will be like repetition for some of you. Uh, some of it could be new for, for some of you. But I figure it's better to be a broken record. And some of you don't even know what that means. <laughs> and I won't try to explain it to you. You can... Search it out. But I'd rather keep repeating something over and over and over and over so that it really sinks in and becomes part of the fabric of who you are. Okay. The Bible tells one continuous story from creation to Christ to new creation. How many of you have heard that before? Wow, good. One continuous story. Such an important thing. All right. Yet the Bible can be a little bit confusing as well because it's not a textbook. It doesn't put everything in, this, in one place like you'd want it to put it. And so the invitation for us as, as people is to this journey of search out God's word, which means read it continually, read it for, for your whole life. You'll keep learning and discovering things about who God is and how he's made the universe and how it works. And I love that. I'm in my 50-something year of reading the Bible. Some of you have been reading it for longer than I have, I think. But the joy of new discoveries, new going, wow, Lord, I'm seeing something about you I hadn't seen before. Your plan is even more magnificent than I thought it was. I always thought it was great when I discovered Jesus, but now I'm discovering more and more things about you. So here's some basic things about the Bible. It's not one book. It's a library of 66 books. There were 39 books written before Jesus and 27 written after Jesus. So, and I like that. I like that. Imagine if we changed how our Bibles are described in the table of contents and did away with what we call old and new and we said, pre-Jesus and post-Jesus, or before Christ and after Christ. Wouldn't that be significant? Because the Bible's telling what? One continuous story from creation to Christ to new creation. Anyway, that's won't say too much more about that. Uh, the Bible's written by f over 40 authors. Um, we think all of them are Jews. There's a question mark over one who could be a Hellenistic Jew, but we won't there's no point having a debate over that. It's written over a time span of a thousand plus years. Uh, but all the authors, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they share the same understanding of how the universe works. And it's very different. Their understanding of how the universe works is very different from our culture and our worldview. And that's an important thing to remember. They didn't grow up where you grew up. They didn't see the world in the way that you see the world. They didn't have cars. 
or the internet or mobile phones or flushing toilets. So their world was very different to yours. And so that's significant, but it's not an insurmountable challenge for us. The Bible's written in languages that probably none of us speak. Do any of us speak Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, Koine Greek, Aramaic? Any of us speaking that at home? Probably not. No. So again, we've got to, we've got to come to this from a, a, a learner's point of view. But few of us actually want to take the time and effort, because it does take time and it does take effort, to learn something like ancient Hebrew and also to study ancient Near Eastern culture and understand the biblical worldview. Hardly any of us in this room are saying, I just want to be an archaeologist. I just want to spend my days in the dirt with a toothbrush painstakingly sweeping away with my toothbrush to find hidden gems of ancient civilizations. You guys in the front row, you don't look excited. You're not signed up to that. And so we have to rely on the work that other men and women have done and are doing. And it's important work. And I praise God that there are men and women living today and others that have gone before them that they couldn't think of anything better than learning ancient Hebrew, learning ancient Near Eastern culture, spending time in the dirt with a toothbrush. They thought it was wonderful. And we benefit from their experience because they did those things. Look, what I'm trying to say is, it's so important when we come to the Bible to, to say, I need to be a lifelong learner. That's my, that's my posture. I have to be a Bible-centered lifelong learner. I have to, I'm going to be a student of the Bible for my entire life. And even when I get to the end of it, I'll feel like there's still more that I could have learned. Now, one of the things people say to me sometimes, do you get nervous when you, when you get up to speak? on a Sunday morning, because you've been doing it for years, so clearly you're not nervous anymore. Uh, Some days I'm more nervous than others. Most days I'm nervous. One of the reasons I'm nervous, because Julie and I take the Bible seriously. And one of the things that Jesus' younger brother said in his letter, in the third chapter, he said, Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. So I understand, and I have a sense of, uh, of fear of the Lord to teach his word for his purposes, for his glory. And we carry that with us. And Paul, again, when he wrote to Timothy, the young pastor, not so young, he's probably in his 30s, but he was the pastor of Ephesus in, in Greek. And Paul said this to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 16. He said... Timothy, keep a close watch on how you live and your teaching. Stay true to what is right for the sake of your own salvation and the salvation of those who hear you. So, in other words, yeah, I am nervous when I get up here and speak. Not so much for the act of public speaking, because I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. But I'm nervous in the sense of, 
I understand that what I'm teaching means that I will incur a judgment on me that will be stricter than some of you will endure. And it means that I need to pay close attention to my own life and teaching. The stakes are high is my point. But the stakes are high for you as well. Don't you be thinking, oh, I can just switch off then because Wayne takes, I'll just, you know, when I stand before God, it'd be like, well, it's Wayne's fault. You know, he didn't teach me properly. I tell you, that's not going to wash with Jesus when you stand before him to, to blame it on me. He's going to say, you had the Bible. You could have read it for yourself, did you? You could have invested in studying it. So what's the best translation of the Bible? And for those who didn't hear that answer, that was my son saying, the one you read, and that is the answer. The best translation of the Bible is the one you read. Just if you, you're reading one, read it. Get familiar with that one translation. And what I mean by get familiar, it means use the footnotes and the cross-references in there. If you've got a Bible with a center column or side columns with cross-references and, and footnotes, look at those because they're in there for a reason. It's not just to fill up the page. It's like, oh, look, we've got a lot of white space on this page. We better put some other numbers and letters in there. They're there for a reason. They're there to help you grow in understanding. So if you don't... If you don't know what, if you don't use those things and use the maps as well. Like I'm not saying the maps are the inspired word of God, you know, but they're important. Like they show you things. They show you where these things happened and what's going on, you know. So when you read about Paul's journeys, there's a map usually in the back of your Bible that shows you where he went in the world. There's a map of Israel in the time of Jesus that shows you where all the stuff that Jesus did happen. All these, they're there for a reason to help you. I'm just begging you. Get a Bible, read it, and become familiar with these things called the cross-references and the maps and the footnotes. And learn to identify the different genres of writing. Some of, the, some of the books are historical, some of them have narratives, some of them are poetic, some of them are prophetic, some of them are letters and wisdom. Get to know them, right? Deuteronomy 32, what's that? Julie told you. What, what, what's it called? A song, yeah. It's a song of Moses, there you go. You learned something, you can go home now. Take the rest of the morning off. You want to get to know the authors, who this author was, right? When we're say, I'm saying the Bible is the inspired word of God, but they're written through human agency. Don't discount the human author, their perspective. Who are they? They're putting themselves in there. They're not robots. They're not artificial intelligence. They're humans. Get to know the author and get to know their audience as well. Like who they, so yeah, Deuteronomy 32. Who's listening to Deuteronomy 32? Who's listening to Deuteronomy 32? Assembly of Israel. Where are they? If you're calling out, and I can't hear, if you're calling out on the banks of the Jericho River waiting to cross over into the promised land, that'd be the right answer. Well done if you said that. And are they the ones that came out of Egypt? 
No, they've all died off. So this is a new generation. So Deuteronomy 32 is actually telling them their family story. In fact, the whole book of Deuteronomy is that generation. Moses is speaking to them and saying, some of you were born while this was happening, but so it's important for you to know your history. All this stuff is important. Get to know them. Okay. Now this tells me four things that we need when we come to the Bible. It says that I need humility and I need wisdom and revelation. Now humility, straight up, is a counter-cultural attitude and aptitude, particularly today. It always is because as humans, we are self-centered. We like to provoke promote ourselves we like to think we're smart we're intelligent we're the smartest people that have ever lived the ones that lived before us they were dummies but we're the really smart ones today we won't we won't do this we won't make the same mistakes they made because they were dumb right wrong why does history seem to keep repeating itself why are we not learning things now that's a complicated, it's a simple answer question, it's a quite a complex answer. But So, first of all, when we come to the Bible, now we need humility because the world of the Bible is very different to my world. And I'm 2,000 years away from the New Testament writers. That was written, the New Testament post-Jesus books, right, were written about 2,000 years ago. The pre-Jesus books, I'm even further away from, about 3,000 years away from them, and I don't share an ancient Near Eastern perspective of the world. There's some beautiful old maps, like really old, like older than me, people, where it actually shows the world, and you can find these, where it's actually got, the world was understood to have the Middle East in the middle of the world. That's why it's called the Middle East. It was in the middle of the world, and what's in the centre of the Middle East is a little spot that we call Israel, and in the centre of Israel is a place we call Jerusalem. There's a reason for that. Okay. So we want humility. Secondly, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to instruct us, which is why we pray regularly in this in New Life Church. We teach you to pray Paul's prayer from Ephesians 1. God, I need a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that the eyes of my heart are opened and I see and understand you. I want to know you more, God. So as I come to the Bible, open my eyes to see you. And thirdly, one of the things that we need is other people's brains. And I don't mean go and open someone's skull and, you know, pull their brain out. What I mean is be a student. Look at the books, look at the podcasts, look at the video teachings that are being put around. You do have to, you know, chew the meat and spit the bones out, some, some of them. Learning. And, and the fourth thing is you need, to, you need to be part of a community. Church history is littered with people who gained a, ro- a position of prominence in the church and then began to think they alone had the truth and they began to discount everybody else. So we need to be a community of Bereans. This is Paul in Acts and he says the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. 
And what they do, the Bereans, they listened eagerly to Paul's message. And then what they do, they search the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. And that's what I mean. Be a Berean in this place. Be a Berean. It's part of what we do in Disciple One groups, part of what we do in our house churches. But there's a conversation going on, which we've always got to have. So we've got to always be searching the Bible to see if what, what you're being taught here and in other places is really true. Just because you see it on YouTube or you hear it on a podcast, don't, don't necessarily believe it. You've got to go search the scriptures. Make sure it's really true. People can use Bible verses, but they can be misusing Bible verses because they're cherry, what we call cherry picking. They're pulling verses out that make the point they want to make. But actually, if you look at all the verses in the Bible from beginning to end, you don't get that same point. So we want to be Bereans. We want to do it with everything. So here's the end of the first point of the message. The Bible tells us one continuous story from creation to, to new creation. And it also tells us that humans are created to worship and obey the creator and his word. That's what it tells me. The Bible's really clear about that. Humans are created to worship and obey the creator and his word. And that all goes back to the beginning. But the thing is, your mind and my mind is prone to trust me. And I read stuff in the Bible and my brain goes, sometimes, that can't be right. That's wrong. They got that wrong. They didn't understand the world. They were dumb back in those days. And our hearts, so our minds are prone to trust ourselves, which the other word for that is pride. To exalt my mind above, above God's mind. Let me just say on that, I don't believe things simply because the Bible says them. I believe them because I've studied the textual evidence for the historicity of the Bible and its continuous representation. And I have confidence that the Bible I read today is actually the word of God that's been handed down for thousands of years. So I am confident about the Bible, but I'm confident that the Bible is what it claims to be, the living word of God, because I've actually examined the evidence that supports that as against all other ancient books. And that, if you've never done that, I encourage you to do that. So we've got, we're prone to pride to trust ourselves and our thoughts and exalt our thoughts above what the Bible says. But our hearts also... The Bible lays us bare because we have a proclivity to rebellion. A proclivity means we've got this tendency to rebel against God. And go, no, I want to do it my way. That's our, that is what our tendency is. And so we have to wrestle our minds into submission to the word of God. And we have to wrestle our hearts into that place as well. And say, help me, God, to submit to you and to submit to your word. And the thing about that is there are also rebellious divine beings who will assist our hearts and our minds against God. And that's what we're going to talk about now. 
So this is point number two. We're going to talk about something called the divine council. So this is from Deuteronomy 32. And this is the lenses that I want to give you this morning. And, and for some of you, these lenses won't be new. For some, they will be. But I want to say that once you actually begin to see the Bible through, these, through this Deuteronomy 32 lens, you I'm going to show you some things. And as you go home and read the Bible, you'll begin to see it everywhere. And it will be like transformation from blurry to sharply focused. It's a pretty big subject. And... I am not going to obviously be able to do it in full details today. So again, I'm going to share my resources with you at the end. Uh, and the PowerPoint will be available online and uh, say this. One of the resources that I'm using is the work of the late Dr. Michael Heiser, who died in uh, January, I think it was this year or February. And he was one of these men who loved the hard stuff in the Bible who loved learning ancient Hebrew, who loved studying ancient Near Eastern culture and, and, and doing that work, that hard work. Um, and uh, one of the things that uh, Michael uh, was famous for was his uh, Naked Bible podcast. How many of you have listened to any of his episodes? A few of you had, the Naked Bible podcast. And, and what, what he means by that is... Because he would just try to let the Bible speak for itself. Uh, he wasn't trying to fit it into a particular theological framework. So he wasn't coming to it, say, for example, as a Pentecostalist and going, well, it has to fit this, this box, the Pentecostal box. And he wasn't coming to it as, as strict, as a, like a, a reformer, if you like, or a Calvinist and going, I gotta, I gotta shoehorn this stuff into this theological framework. Um, he just, that's why I called it the Naked Bible, because it's like, I'm just trying to let the Bible speak for itself. Uh, and yeah, it, it's very interesting. Anyway, so Psalm 82 opens with this phrase. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Okay, now straight away, that ought to raise some questions for you. I hope it does. Hang on, what do you mean? God's taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. In the midst of the gods. One of the things that we are familiar with is the Hebrew word Elohim. But Elohim can be both um, a, a proper, uh, like it can be speaking of one God, the one God, the Elohim. But it can also be, a, you, it's also used in, in the Old Testament for other gods. Lesser, lesser beings. Now we've got a graphic that will come up in a moment, not yet. That, that you get a bit of an idea about that. So, so it ought to evoke a question in you when you read Psalm 82. What is this divine counsel? What is this thing where God, Elo, God, the God Elohim has taken his place in the midst of the lesser Elohim to hold judgment? Okay? So this phrase the divine council is something that's used by hebrew and semantic scholars to refer to the heavenly host who administer the affairs of the cosmos interesting so the heavenly host who administer the affairs of the cosmos ancient near eastern scholars know that from their research of of all of the cultures around the 
Mesopotamian basin, the Mediterranean cultures, they all have embedded in them, in their worldview, this idea of a divine council. Okay? Now, but the divine council in Israel has a very distinct difference. And this is really important. It said, there is one supreme God who is the only one who's uncreated, pre-existent, and he rules everything else. And his, none of his purposes and plans can be thwarted. So, remember we talked about archaeologists before, people who love to study ancient texts and artifacts and scrolls, digging up things with tiny toothbrushes and things. Over the years, what they've pieced together is literally um, millions of pieces of information. If you've, if you've some of you recently were in Israel, some of you were recently in Turkey. If you go into those parts of the world, you, you will visit places that are called tells. A tell is a, is, means that it's something where civilizations are built on top of each other. Because a, a new world ruler comes in, just demolishes everything that's there, builds their stuff on top of it. Then they get overtaken and they get demolished and then the next one comes in and builds on top of it. And so you get these slices through these mounds um, which, and you can dig down and they, not, they find artefacts. So that's important to understand. So what these archaeologists and ancient Near Eastern scholars said, as, I, as I've said, they said all ancient Mediterranean cultures had some conception of a divine council, but Israel's had a unique feature. So let's have that graphic about Israel's divine council, that it had one supreme, uncreated, pre-existent God who created all the other lesser gods, the other lesser Elohim, and, and created everything else. And this supreme God ruled over the other members of the divine council. Um, his power and authority were unequaled and he alone was worshipped. Only he, They were all created to worship him, just as humans were created to worship him. Right? You following with me? Okay, some of you are on board. Okay. Pre-existent. Think of Exodus 3, when God speaks to Moses from a bush that's on fire but not being burned up and commissions him to go and do this task of bringing people, bringing Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses says to him, all the gods have names. What's your name, God, so that when I go there and tell them, who shall I say sent me? And what's God's answer? God says, tell them I am sent you. Now for us that doesn't make sense. But what it, what in Hebrew it simply says, I am the power that exists. Tell them the power that exists sent you. They would understand that. Because their worldview was, there's a power that exists over all these other gods. They're being held captive in Egypt. Who's, they're enslaved. We talk about enslaved to Pharaoh. 
But when you think about what the plagues were, they were judgments against the Elohim that were ruling Egypt, against the gods. So we know it's a God-on-God confrontation. And of course, the God wins that confrontation, which explains to us why Pharaoh does not want to let the Israelites go to serve Yahweh. Right? And that's a better way of translating when Moses goes into Pharaoh and says, Yahweh says, let my people go so they can serve me. Well, the gods of Egypt going, no way, Jose. No way are they, are we letting these guys go to serve him? We've got them. They're serving us. We're not going to let them go. This has implications for today. This is the thing that Paul talks about in Ephesians 1. Before we came into the grace of God in Christ, we were killed captive by the powers and the principalities of the air. That's what he's talking about. All right, let's keep moving on. Um, He is also known as the Most High, and this occurs in in several different places, but one one of the clearest places to find it is in Daniel 2.47. When there's a conversation going on between Daniel and, and uh, the emperor of that time, who I think was Nebuchadnezzar, and it's about a dream, and I'm not telling you what the dream is. I want you to tell me the dream, and I want you to tell me the interpretation, right? And no one could do this, and then God, Daniel prays to, to Yahweh, and Yahweh shows him, and Daniel goes into the king and tells him the dream and tells him the interpretation of it, and Nebuchadnezzar responds and says something, he says like this, he says, truly your God, your Elohim is the greatest of the Elohim, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this secret. So the most high God is a phrase that occurs in Daniel. There's other ways. The sovereign Lord occurs multiple times in Ezekiel. All of these things, all these Bible phrases, once you, once you have Deuteronomy 32 lenses, you begin to see, ah, oh, there are these lesser gods that do exist. So Deuteronomy 32 teaches us several things about Yahweh. So let's go on to that. And I'll probably use the name Yahweh from now on as a way of, instead of saying Elohim, capital E, Elohim, lower E. I'd say Yahweh and the lesser gods or something like that. Anyway, Deuteronomy 32, 8. If you've got your Bibles open, please, if you don't have them open, please open them. If you have got them open, that's good. So Deuteronomy 32, 8 describes Yahweh's dispersal of the nations at Babel and his resultant disinheriting of those nations where he gave them over to these lesser Elohim. So the verse reads, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now some of your translations will say, it will have a different word. It will say probably something like the sons of Israel. I'm going to talk about that because that's what we call a textual variant um, in a moment. Then Deuteronomy 32.9 tells us that the nation of Israel belongs to Yahweh alone. When the Most High apportioned the nations 
as an inheritance, when he divided up humankind, he established the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. So we're referencing back into Genesis 10, 11 and 12 here very quickly. Don't have time to unpick all this. So Genesis 10, we've got what we call the table of nations. So it's believed to be that there were 70 nations and there's a, that's, that's where that idea comes from Genesis 10 Genesis 11 we get the Tower of Babel and this is the God comes down and he divides up that the people into 70 nations and apportions an Elohim a lesser Elohim over over each of those nations but he takes who Israel Genesis 12 what happens in Genesis 12 Abraham so therefore, God's in purpose to have for himself a, an earthly family. He begins through one man, Abraham. So when we get to Deuteronomy 32, we're quite a way down the track, but we've got this idea. And this is the worldview of the biblical authors. That's what I'm trying to say to you today. It might sound a bit weird and strange to you. You might never have thought of this before. But it's this idea and, it's, and it explains a lot of things. If you, when you understand there were these lesser Elohim who God wanted to partner with, Yahweh, Supreme God, wanted to partner with them to rule the earth, but they were meant to worship him. Worship him. That was the wrong hand signal. Worship him. All right. They were created to worship him, but somewhere along there, some of them got this idea, whoa, why should God get all the worship? I reckon I'm, you know, look at me. You know, I want some of that for me. And so then this, then that journey of corrupting humanity begins to go. And then we hear about we're supposed, God wants to create humans who will be his images, who will reflect him back. They will, in the place of worship, we're commanded to worship because worship is a transforming thing. It helps us become who God created us to be. That's why God commands us to worship. Okay, moving, keep going along here. So we've got this thing, we've got nature, God apportions and says, it basically says to the, to the lesser Elohim, you guys have that bit and I'll just take this one group. And they'll be mine. And through them, I'm going to save all the others. Watch me. So then if we can, so then the other, the lesser Elohim are like, well, if we take them out, God can't fulfill his plan and we win. We will have defeated Yahweh. Let's go for a poison. Girls, whatever. <laughs> Let's just do it. Right? Now, kind of might change how you read the bible once you understand this it's like ah, oh, there's actually a cosmic battle going on it's far better than the marvel adventures and the other superheroes wow this is something that we get caught up into as people okay some of your translations will read sons of israel instead of sons of god so um we we get the phrase sons of God instead of sons of Israel uh, because we are basing that from the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, are found where? 
Very good. Near the Dead Sea. Good answer. Woohoo! Yes. So, all right. They're the oldest records that we have. Uh, they were discovered between 1946 and, 19, 1946 and 1956. So over a 10-year period, different, different scrolls were found in different caves in the Dead Sea. There are about 15,000 fragments, and they were literally a treasure trove for Bible scholars and for archaeologists. They were so excited as these became known. And there's all sorts of joy and delight and dancing and singing over these things because they're they're amazing and what the great thing is for us who love the bible what all of these things they're so old but they all confirmed what we what the bible said there's nothing in there that was found that that meant oh we've got to throw the bible away because it's wrong we've now got older evidence no we got all this old evidence that supports it and there's a few little tweaks like this deuteronomy 32 where we go actually that makes better sense elohim makes better sense than Israel because at the time of Babel, Israel did not exist. It didn't. It comes after. So it's like, oh, this makes, this makes better sense. So let me summarize what I've, what I've been trying to say to you this morning. Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9 is fundamental for understanding the worldview of Old Testament Israel. How they perceive the world. And these two verses help explain the existence of the divine council and Yahweh's supremacy. Now, a parallel, and I'm not basing this all on just two verses, by the way, if you, there's plenty of places, but that, those two are key. Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9. But if you also look at Deuteronomy 4, 19 and 20, you get like the other side of that coin. So I'll read those verses too. Deuteronomy 4, 19 and 20. And the warning from Moses is, And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, whom the Lord your God has allotted to all the nations under the whole of heaven. So these things have been allotted to the nations, but the Lord has taken you, Israel, and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are to this day. So what I'm trying to say here is that Deuteronomy 4 is, is the flip side of the same coin of Deuteronomy 32. So in Deuteronomy 32, we see God allocates the nations to the sons of God, to the lesser Elohim. And in Deuteronomy 4, we see that God allocates the lesser gods to the nations. Okay, there's a lot going on in your head, I hope. And I think, and I hope you're going, man, I've got to read my Bible again. I've got to start from Genesis 1 and get a handle on this, and that's good. So in Genesis 11, we've got the Babel Rebellion, where God judges all the nations for their disobedience. Uh, we, and, in the, and he calls Abraham in Genesis 12. Psalm 82 condemns both the members of the nations and the sons of God, their lesser Elohim, for disloyalty, rebellion and corruption. Okay. So a biblical worldview explains why Israel is distinct from all other nations and also the gods of all the other nations. And yet, and, and Israel's propensity or proclivity to unfaithfulness, and they kept wanting to be like the other gods because it's hard to be the odd one out. 
We all know that. It's hard to be the odd one out. So it's like, well, if we couldn't, we could just blend in here. We could, you know, still do Yahweh, but we could do some other things. We could do Ashtoreth, we could do Baal, we could, you know, pick up the Canaanite gods as well. It's no problem, okay? It's like, no, no. You've been set apart to reveal Yahweh, the pre-existent uncreated God. You've been set apart to reveal him to the world. Jump forward into the the books that are written after the time of Jesus and Paul's letter. Paul's letter tells to the Romans tells us that we who are non-Jews have been grafted in to that thing because God's plan, Paul's letter in uh, to the Ephesians one tells us that His plan is to bring everything in heaven and earth under the leadership of his son. Colossians 1 says that in him, Christ, all the fullness of God resides and that it was God's plan to reconcile to himself everything through the death of his son. Everything in heaven and on earth. I got no idea what's going on in heaven. I'm just trying to get it done on earth, right? Just trying to reconcile things, just trying to get on board with God's plan to reconcile the earth because I can't do anything in the heavens. God's taking care of that bit. Which is a great relief. It's taken a lot of weight off my shoulders. And so we get things like covenants. This understanding that why is God's covenants with Israel, with Abraham, so important? That they were this nation that God chose for himself. It gives us this in such greater perspective on why God has to fulfill his covenant with Abraham that Abraham's going to have descendants, he's going to have land, and he's going to bless the whole earth. Right? Because if God doesn't pull off those three things, who wins? The lesser Elohim. They've thwarted him. So if they can thwart God's plan on any of those things, they win. They defeat Yahweh. Now we're going, it's not possible. But... Pride provokes all of us. We all think, I can take you. Or if I get a few other blokes, I can take you. It also explains why God will never discard or replace Israel. Why he never did. He never can. Because again, if God goes, I'm done with Israel... If he's divided up the nations amongst the lesser Elohim, who's he got left? He got nothing. Right? So he's not going to replace Israel. He's not going to discard them. See, this is the wisdom of God. What's well, the foolishness of God that's smarter than the wisdom of the wisest people that we've got on the planet? This, this worldview lens also helps us understand why there continues to be such rage against Israel among the nations, why anti-Semitism is just like on this repetitive cycle, and why, and why it also causes angst sometimes when you, when, in our own hearts when we hear about Israel. And we go, well, what about me, God? Aren't I special? Aren't I chosen? All this kind of thing, as if somehow there's a, there's a conflict. But some, sometimes our own heart betrays us and we need to go, wow, Lord, when I hear about Israel, I get really agitated, angry, confused. God, have I got, some, have I got something in my heart 
that actually is exalting itself against your eternal plan? Lord, please root that out. It also helps us understand why the Temple Mount's the most hotly contested space on the planet. Because Psalm 2 tells us that's where God has said, my son is going to sit there on his throne and rule the nations. It's like, wow, well, if, if the lesser Elohim gang, if they can pull that rug out, win, winner. Stop Jesus coming back. Stop him being crowned as king. Stop him being welcomed back in and says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All of these things. So now I want to just wrap up with saying, here's a few, here's a few more reasons why it's important to teach this. Number one, it's in the Bible. That should be self-explanatory. But it also, when you, when you see this understanding of a divine counsel, it unlocks some other verses. Um, it unlocks verses like Job 1, 6 to 12, which some of you will know off by heart. It's where the adversary comes waltzing into the presence of God and goes, and God says, hey, have you seen my servant Job? He's awesome. And the adversary, the accuser goes, it's only because you take care of him. Let me get my hands on him. Like, hang on, hang on, hang on. How does the adversary get access to God? Like, okay. But if you've got a divine counsel thing going on, you go, he does. How does it work? Don't know. Mystery, wonder, magic. You go, I don't know how this works, but the text says that. So I have to adapt my thinking to the text rather than go, well, he can't, that can't be right. Anyway, there's a whole lot of things that we could say about that. And of course, what's the question in Job 1? Is it not the same question as, as, or similar question to Genesis 3 with Eve? Is it not the same accusation against the character of God? Job only loves you, God, because you, you give him good stuff. God, you are not worth loving in and of yourself if my life is a struggle so what's God going to do well he could remove the adversary that would be he would blink his eye and he would disappear but the divine counsel has heard the accusation so God accepts the challenge and Job discovers God my eyes have seen you or he comes firstly he says my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you, and I repent in dust and ashes. You are worthy of worship, God. You're worthy of worship. Your character is impeccable, God. It also explains the different gods that are worshipped around the world, including in our nation, the gods. Okay, because there's a God that rules each nation. But in every nation, God's raising up a witness for himself. He's, he's, he's saving people through his grace by the power of the Son and the Spirit. Um, it also partly explains why Western nations, and I've used that phrase deliberately, Western nations who chose to obey the Bible were healthy, productive and prosperous. So... And that's worth investigating. If you've never investigated that, why is there a disparity between some nations? I'd suggest that it was Western nations 
going back several hundred years, governments made decisions and the people made decisions that they would obey and worship God, Yahweh. And in that place, they received blessing. Nations that don't, tribes that don't, don't carry that. It also helps us understand verses like Ephesians 6.12 that we're not fighting against flesh and blood, enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. But I want to say to you, and this is where we'll finish this morning, the most important reason is because we're humans and we're created to be Yahweh's images, Genesis 1, which means that every human will become like the God we worship. It's, it's how we're created. The God we worship, and so the choice is we will worship Yahweh, Father, Son and Spirit, or we'll worship lesser gods. But whichever God we won't not worship, we will worship. We might even worship ourselves or our intellect or some other thing or a right? We will worship and we'll become conformed to the likeness of the God or gods we worship. The one we give our allegiance to is who we'll become like. And the rebellious sons of God in the divine council know that about you. They know that about you. And they've been doing this a long time. They've been, they've been seducing people for thousands of years to draw worship away from Yahweh to themselves and to transform human beings to be like them. Because they know they get humans to worship them, humans will be their images. Because that's, how we're crea- that's what we're created to be. We become like what we worship. This is Paul in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, we need to behold him because we will become like him. And he's holding up Christ. And so the question for, for me and for you, I hope, is this. Who am I becoming? Because who I'm becoming is evidence of who I'm worshipping. And it transforms things. It means small decisions, or what we might think are small decisions, and small choices matter as much as big ones. Because every decision I'm making is a choice to worship Yahweh, to image Yahweh, or something lesser. I'm giving my allegiance either to Yahweh through my life of obedience to him, through seeking to obey the scriptures and all these other things, or I'm going, I don't believe that, I don't think, I don't think that bit of the Bible applies to me. No, that, that bit's irrelevant to me. I, I, can, I, I want to do this, so I'll just do this. We will become who we obey, who we give our allegiance to. So here's some examples. These are just, uh, I, we could have a whole session, couldn't we? You've probably got some examples in your head right now of things, right? Parents have probably got some things thinking about their children. Children might have some things about parents. Let me say this. All of 
the pre-Jesus commands in the Bible and the post-Jesus commands in the Bible are designed to help us become images of the unique Son of God, Jesus, right? And when, we put, when you get that bit, it's like, actually, this is meant to help me become his image. So, so therefore, here's some little things. Does the way I wear my school uniform and my attitude reveal Yahweh or a rebellious God? Well, that's a bit pointed, isn't it? Here's another one. Is a tattoo worthy of the temple of Yahweh? At work, am I conforming to the rebellious power, the little Elohim that rules over that, or... Am I a Daniel, like Daniel in the Bible, known to have the spirit of the supreme God in me, in my workplace? People might not run around and say that. We could go on and on and on. Okay, here's a couple of sources for you. Just flick them up there. I gave them to you before, the work of Dr. Michael Heiser, his website, The Divine Council, The Naked Bible Podcast, his book, The Unseen Realm. There's also a great little video series for those of you who like watching videos. Uh, the Bible Project put a great series together called Spiritual Beings Series. It's got seven parts and you can find it on their website. So those resources are available. And I encourage you, do, do the work. Do the work for yourself. Like I say, be Bereans. Don't just believe me. Do the work for yourself. Use your Bible. Use the cross-references in your Bible. Use the footnotes. Use the maps. We don't have maps about the lesser gods, but you can, use, you can find lots of things in there. I want us to pray together. Let's, we invite you to pause and to pray. And say, Lord, help us. Help us, God, as we ponder these great things about you and about how you're running the universe. And help us to know what response you're looking for. And as we think of those archaeological sites where civilizations are built on top of each other and archaeologists dig down through the different layers to learn the history. Holy Spirit, I ask you to be like a divine archaeologist digging through the layers of our lives. Just right now, as you're sitting there, your eyes closed and your head's bowed. Just say, Holy Spirit, investigate my whole life history, layer by layer, throwing out the junk and keeping what you put in there as I grew, particularly those things that have long forgotten from my childhood so that I grow up to become like Jesus in every way. Just going to pause for a minute just to let you speak out your own prayer to God. Just invite Him to search. As we continue to lay foundations, as we continue to prepare ourselves, as we head towards Pentecost, as we look forward for the, to the return of Jesus, to be a people who have made ourselves ready. The bride that's made herself ready for the, for the King of Glory. I encourage you to give God permission to crush your pride, 
Expose the rebellion in your own heart that doesn't want to surrender fully to him. As the psalmist said, as David said, search me, O God, and know me. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me, so that you will lead me in the way everlasting. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Go in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit as people who live in the fullness of what it means to be children of God. Carry his presence with you out into the world as you go, as his images to reveal his beauty and his light each day of this week. His blessing be on you. Amen.